the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Hey, happy Tuesday, January 10th to you. Hope you're uh, doing your best to try and stay nice and uh, dry and safe and warm, especially as you're uh, driving out on the commute. Now, in the part of the bay that I'm in, I'm seeing a bit of wind, not a lot of rain just yet, but there's more in the forecast as we continue to... uh, Seems as if we're taking the the past four or five years worth of rainy seasons and just compacting them into two weeks. It's uh, it's been rough to be sure. So uh, the watchword, as always, is uh, keep your eye on the road ahead and uh, make sure you make your way home safely. This current series of storms across California has tragically claimed the lives of sixteen people. Two were killed this morning in a chain reaction crash as a tree fell on a highway, a highway just south of Fresno, the National Weather Service, indicating that there are more areas of California that have seen almost 17 inches of precipitation in just the last two days. Other deadly incidents include cars being swept away in floodwaters, trees falling on unsuspected victims, and um, as you probably heard up in Occidental here just a few days ago, a small child was killed when a redwood tree fell on a family's home in Sonoma. Dangerous weather will continue to bring storms to the West Coast through the weekend, so uh, make sure you're going to be as safe as possible. All right, well, much to talk about as we kind of dive into a brand new year here, looking at the year that was and some of the most important, um, uh, perhaps not just legislative decisions, but uh, decisions handed down by the Supreme Court having an impact as we go into the new year, the topic of our discussion today. And as we uh, welcome to the microphones, Bob Zadek, let me tell you a bit about him. He is a syndicated talk show host, best-selling author. He is both a CPA and an attorney and hosts the longest-running libertarian talk show in America, the Bob Zadek Show, broadcast locally here in the San Francisco Bay region, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer. And Robert, as always, great to have you with us, and a happy new year to you. Oh, and thank you very much for inviting me, Craig. I'm glad to be back. Well, lots of um, lots of intrigue, no doubt, in Washington, D.C. over the last week. And before we dive in, I just want to get your, your thoughts uh, in particular. Certainly unprecedented in our lifetime to see the challenge, the debate, the discussion, the wailing and gnashing of, <laughs> of teeth and, and everything else in relationship to finally selecting a House speaker. And after the 15th try who says you can't win um, certainly Kevin McCarthy I think uh, relieved although I have to wonder ultimately at what kind of a price the negotiating that went on to try and gain the votes um, certainly puts his in a more precarious position in that now it doesn't take much to bring forward a no vote of confidence which could lead 
to uh, the loss of his seat. It, it, does this, in your in your mind, Bob, in any way impact his ability to lead? Uh, that's um, kind of on the surface. That's above my pay grade um, because who knows what goes on in those proverbial smoke-filled rooms. Now there may be vape filled rooms who knows so i don't know the answer to that question but that question assumes something that i'm not prepared to assume you said affect his capacity to govern well i'm not so sure that's the job of the speaker the speaker is to run the house it's organizational it's keep the train's running on time, if you will. It's to handle the Senate performing its business. And the fact that the Speaker doesn't have the power to force legislators to do what the Speaker feels to be in the best interest of the country, I'm not so sure. I don't have an opinion. Well, I do have an opinion. Um, I don't see what's wrong with each representative being free to represent his constituency in the best way he knows how. Isn't that what we sent her there for, to represent us? Did we send somebody to the House based upon their level of obedience or based upon their doing what's best for the party? I don't think so. And if every representative did what they felt voted their duty as they individually decided, isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that why we sent them there? And so it remains to be seen what legislation looks like when you have a legislature that doesn't have the incredibly efficient control with Speaker Pelosi had. She had the needs of an individual legislator, a Democrat, didn't matter. And obviously the needs of the Republicans didn't matter. It's only what Pelosi, in her view of what mattered, is that's what governed. I'm not so sure the Pelosi-style speakership is better for the country than the Kevin McCarthy possible style. Now, I'm sure what Pelosi did was better for the Democrats. Maybe, I shouldn't say I'm sure. It probably was for the Democrats writ large. And maybe what McCarthy does will benefit the Republicans less than how Pelosi benefited the Democrats. But let's wait and see. We're now going to try a different style of management in the House, and I'm prepared to say I might like it. We'll see. Well, and at the end of the day, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that that this is this is really about the the House Speaker's role from an organizational and operational standpoint. What I think is problematic, and you kind of touched upon it, and that is the almost undue influence that in in recent years has been wielded by the House Speaker. I mean, for example, a, a vote regarding whether or not we should completely abolish the IRS. And move to a consumption tax, which 
quite frankly, I, I, I think resonates. I think that it's uh, perhaps an idea whose time uh, has certainly come, at the very least, to, to engage in some hearty, serious discussion. But, of course, we also know, given the makeup of the Senate, that the likelihood of such a vast change would probably never come to light, at least not in the short term. And so it seems as if there was, well, again, back to the smoke-filled rooms. What kind of deals were made? We don't know. I think I think the fact that the, the Speaker has the ability to influence what legislation gets voted upon, what gets discussed and what doesn't, I think that becomes problematic because in my mind it, it it's it's a an undue influence on the system that I believe the founding fathers never originally intended. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine them seeing either the the Senate pro tem or the Speaker of the House wielding that much, not organizational power, not operational power, but legislative power and being able to kind of lord over um, the entire House and, and be able to manipulate members of Congress into voting in the direction that's not their conscious or not based on what they're constituents would like to see, but rather what's part of somebody else's agenda or what's good for the party as opposed to what's good for the nation. So I would, uh, I fancied during this fighting, I allowed myself a flight of fancy and I asked myself, what would the House be like if the Speaker were a, not a member of either political party was, let's say, a professional speaker, an administrator, and a, a chief executive officer, and assuming the job was to have the Senate produce product, produce legislation, show up on time, not to waste too much money in doing so, and keep churning out legislation or repealing legislation and legislators would go home and they would run on the record on their record and how they voted in this legislative body but imagine and i couldn't imagine it because i've never seen it in my lifetime but i wondered i wondered whether or not that would produce a better functioning body, whether the body would simply work better. I don't know the answer, but I certainly am not going to buy into the assumption that without a really powerful speaker, everything falls apart. I'll see, I'll, we'll, Craig will make a note and I'll put a post it on my monitor, discuss with Craig in two years, yep. whether I like it or not, yeah. <laughs> and we'll have a conversation then. But I certainly am I'm always optimistic that's just how I'm wired. But I'm not pessimistic at all. And I'm kind of curious intellectually. Gee, what this will be fun to watch. And I think, I think that I might be pleased. In any event, I might care more. I might be able to see how my elected official behaves as an elected official, independent of the, the speakership. Right now, under the Pelosi style, if you were a Democrat, you only asked one thing of your representative, that 
he or she obey Pelosi. So in other words, you're hiring somebody to be obedient and to don't dare think. Is that what we pay people to do? You don't have to do that. Just give, just give Pelosi, okay, Pelosi, you get 218 votes and you have Pelosi and the head of the other party with 212 votes and that's the whole legislature. Isn't that what we have now? I'd rather have individuals, frankly. I kind of think it works better. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. And, uh, you know, that the notion of one person wielding such power almost takes on a feeling as if Congress, and we've talked about this before, there's sort of the trading of roles that suddenly the, the legislative branch is acting like the executive branch, the judicial branch is acting like the legislative branch. Like, everybody needs to stop what you're doing, pick up a copy of the Constitution and reread so that you can become familiar with your actual job duties and quit all of this switching around. And, you know, the, the notion somehow that, well, we're just picking up the slack. If if Congress won't do its job, then the president will do it through uh, executive order, executive fiat. We'll talk about that in a moment after the break in relationship to student loans. And I think it's very troubling that those guardrails are altogether ignored. If not, we intentionally, we meaning members of, of the three branches, crash into them repeatedly, uh, somehow suggesting that, well, we wouldn't do this if that particular branch of government just did its job. And uh, and when that happens, um, the whole thing, roll, roll, you know, has the potentiality of running off the rails. Bob Zadek with us tonight, syndicated talk show host. And, of course, you can catch his program here locally in the Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. Bob's got a um, very engaging website. You can get information about his books, past guests, podcasts, and other resources by going to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Bit of a review of the year that was in relationship to the United States Supreme Court and uh, constitutional consequences of much of what went on during 2022. One of the areas that... um, is getting some attention yet once again by Supreme Court is the president's attempt to try by executive fiat to just say, that's it, you don't own any money in your student loans. And um, questioning why the president thinks he has the power to do so um, is is one thing. And the whole issue of fairness and parity in relationship to those who dutifully made the sacrifice to pay off their student loans now being told, well, good for you for being responsible. These other people over here, they're going to get a hall pass. We'll get to that part of the conversation. When we come back after a brief timeout, Bob Zadek with us. I'm Craig Roberts. You're in tune with Tuesday, January. January 10th edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. Bob Zadek is with us tonight. We're talking about uh, the year that was in 2022 and some of the uh, remarkable decisions made by the United States Supreme Court. And one of the areas that is uh, a decision that's being tuned up <laughs> as the uh, the debate between the executive branch and the judicial branch continues. The topic, of course, student loan forgiveness. Now, the power that the president has in times of emergency, think of times of war, um, sometimes you need to be able to, in an expeditious fashion, um, make decisions, carry out things for the good of the nation. 
But the issue of student indebtedness, school indebtedness, is one that has been growing for decades. To be sure, this one sector has seen enormous spikes of inflation down through the years, certainly riding significantly higher than just the average rate of inflation for other goods and services out there. Hardly, though, over the course of decades of seeing this increase of cost creep that we could suggest this is an emergency at the national level, and therefore perhaps the reason why so many are questioning not only the president's reasoning, but the president's constitutional power to invoke executive order emergency powers to essentially wipe out loans and say to current students, and I'm not arguing that folks don't have a significant amount of debt that that is in some cases choking them. I mean, that that that's a reality. However, what do you say to the person who's dutifully worked and sacrificed to pay off their student debt, only to find out, gee, if they just waited a little bit longer, the president would come in with his magic wand and wipe all that indebtedness out? Bob, let me get your thoughts on this, and, and perhaps you can, you can also opine to the larger question that I invoked before the break, and that is the idea of branches of government sort of trading powers because they don't like what one is doing, so they decide they're going to take it on for themselves. Hey, Craig, you took a wild guess and hoped that I might have an opinion on student loan forgiveness. Well, Craig, good news, you lucked out. I happen to have an opinion on that. So kudos to you for reading my brain. Um, first, a bit of background for our audience who may have forgotten. The basis for or the source of Biden's alleged power. After all, the president can only do what the president is authorized to do by other legislation. If the legislation doesn't empower the president to do something unless the power comes directly from the Constitution, like the power to declare war, then the president doesn't have the power. Well, Biden dusted off a 9-11 era bit of legislation called deceptively the HEROES Act, H-E-R-O-E-S. That's an acronym for something I've long since forgotten. The HEROES Act enacted way back in 2003. And it said, and I'll paraphrase because if I started to read the statute, everybody would change to another station. Uh, The HEROES Act basically said, if the president is empowered to cancel student loan debt, uh, and now I'm taking some liberties with the language, um, if, uh, if the debt was resulting from the occurrence of a national emergency. The concept was the 9-11 crisis and the war which followed sent a lot of soldiers overseas, or too many and they were not, uh, they, their lives were torn asunder, the economy was kind of a mess, and the president was empowered selectively to, on an individual basis, not globally, but on a case-by-case basis, cancel student loan debt. That's how far back Biden had to go. So Biden had to determine that a national emergency dictated that behavior. 
Well, Biden was kind of in a bind because he jumped to COVID. He's milking that for all it's worth. The trouble was Biden famously on 60 Minutes said the pandemic is over. Oh, and by the way, it's over for all purposes except for student loan debt. I forgot to say that, Biden. So, okay, so there we, so my friends, that's the basis for several hundred billion dollars of forgiveness. Now, Craig, you said, as you introduced the topic, that you you said with a bit of of a concession that um, something like, well, I'll concede or you conceded that there may be too much debt out there. And I say, I don't even know what that means. The debt was, for the most part, voluntarily incurred. A lot of human beings made a decision to either forego something or acquire it, albeit with borrowed money. So it's all voluntary. It's people acting on their own because they're allowed to and they're competent to. And what's special about student loan debt? Why not forgive all debt incurred in a casino? Why not forgive all auto loan debt? How about that? If students are too stupid to know whether to go into debt to go to college, aren't they equally too stupid to know not to buy an expensive car? I don't think they're too stupid to do either one. They may have made bad choices for whatever reason, but I don't I don't use pejoratives. I don't quite stupidity. They decided to do so. There are many students who don't buy a car until they can afford it. Others who buy inexpensive cars because that's all they can afford. Others buy cars because it satisfies their ego or whatever. And they incur more debt. If you're going to, if you're going to say, let's satisfy debt because there's simply too much of it, they want to have a lottery and say anybody can put their name in. Oh, we do have that. We have a lottery now. And people probably, if they win the lottery, they're satisfied with that. So what's the problem? So there you have my introductory series of comments. Uh, I'll mention one more comment because you asked the question, Craig. You mentioned, without using the exact words, but everybody knew what you were talking about, you mentioned moral hazard. Moral hazard is a... uh, a policy of the government that encourages behavior that's harmful to the country. That's moral hazard. Sort of, if you don't enforce shoplifting laws, you encourage more shoplifting, creating a moral hazard. Well, if you tell a student who incurred debt more than she could afford, and you then forgive it, The next 16-year-old about to go to college will say, I was taught not to incur too much debt, but that lesson was wrong. Because obviously, government encourages me by saying, don't worry about being irresponsible, we'll bail you out, and how we hate bailouts in this country. So it creates a moral hazard, and lastly, there is, College tuition, the cost of college tuition, has always increased faster than inflation, just like the cost of health care 
always increases faster than inflation. Well, why those two activities? Because those are the two dominant activities where the buyer is least affected by the price. No one cares how much a prescription costs. They have insurance. You don't even know how much it costs, so you don't care. Or how much a trip to the doctor's office costs, because all you pay is the copay. You don't care what things cost. It's somebody else's money, or so you think. The same with tuition. A student who goes to an expensive college and never actually writes a check, a student's lender does, the student doesn't feel the cost, therefore doesn't shop based on price. So those two economic activities always increase, the cost of it increases faster than inflation because there's no relationship between the buyer, the patient in healthcare, or the student in a college. There's no relationship between the buyer of the good or the service and the cost. The buyer is unaffected. So for all of those reasons, this behavior, putting aside the fact of increasing the deficit, that's a whole other show, Craig, as we know. So let's not do that. Let's just discuss this issue directly. For all of those reasons, it's a really bad idea. Plus, of course, Craig, you mentioned the most important, the patent unfairness. The, stu- the student who opted to go to a community college, and not a four-year college, because the student said, that's all I can afford and I choose to be frugal, that student has now been told by the government, you guessed wrong, ma'am, you guessed wrong. You should have gone to an expensive four-year college, hey, somebody else is going to pay. Um, well, that's my... Sorry, I hope it wasn't too long. Multifaceted response and reasoning for your question about student loan forgiveness. Now, I want to narrow this down a, a little bit. I, I do find the, the, the rate that is charged by not all, but many schools, particularly those that sit with multi-billion dollar endowments, that cash just sits there, and instead of doing something to try to make access for students more reasonable, they sit on their endowments, they continue to charge um, the prices that they charge. They obviously find students that are uh, somehow willing to... If not pay, at least get the loan to pay. Uh, I, I find that a bit problematic. I, I, I think that the, the, we could do as a nation a better job to make education more accessible. That said, here's where I do have a problem, and that is this notion of the executive branch using emergency powers in order to come in and declare, we're going to just say no to this major aspect of indebtedness. It's a debt that's not only owed to the federal government, in some cases, there are loans that came from states, and to just my executive fiat suggests we're going to make all that money disappear um, without really fully taking into consideration the totality of the economic consequences of that kind of in debt forgiveness, 
Moreover, going to the heart of, of what you've just mentioned in terms of fairness, well, you know, if if we're going to bail them out there, we bail out railroads, we bail out airlines. During COVID, we bailed out businesses. Where does it end? I mean, it, it almost seems to smack of the notion that um, we're going to coddle the American taxpayer by giving them all kinds of goodies. And I forget who it was that had made the observation that the minute the general uh, taxpayer uh, figures out that he can vote himself money out of the U.S. Treasury, it's all over with. You're correct about that ob- observation. I also don't recall the historical figure who made the observation, but it certainly was true. Um, so, of course, you're right about that. It sends the wrong message. And another problem with college tuition, and I mean, there are so many sectors that have contributed to the problem. The high cost, the high cost is cost nobody cares, as I said, the taxpayer ends up picking, footing the bill, so therefore nobody cares, so the students can pick the most comfortable place to study is after all some of the college budget goes to comfortable accommodations and and perks to make student life more comfortable so they are selling there's a resort component as well as an educational component and a school that just offers high quality education will charge infinitely less even though their product is much more valuable for the dollar spent. And and lastly, we as a society have for some reason, and business bears a lot of the responsibility, we have decided that a college degree somehow tells us as an employer hiring a college grad that a college grad is somehow a better bet than somebody who is seeking a job, an entry-level job, without a college degree or with only a trade school degree. And business, they make a, they're lazy. Rather than a business determining on the basis of the merits who the best applicant is, they take a shortcut. And they say, well, we can ease the job of, of selecting candidates by simply saying the, gradu- the school you graduate from will tell us a lot. Therefore, there's less we have to learn on our own. As opposed to not having that be a consideration and hiring students on the, or applicants on the merits. We would end up with more of a meritocracy college degrees would be less valuable because they wouldn't be a ticket to employment and therefore students would then be more judicious about deciding where to spend their educational dollars. Well, and you you go to the heart of, of an issue that has troubled me for a long time that uh, maybe we'll save for for another edition, and that is this whole notion that we've almost uh, we we have almost deified the notion of getting a two or four year university or college degree. Not to say that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but we have done so at 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 the detriment of trade schools. 
And, you know, for somebody that says, well, you know, I'd rather my son or daughter be a lawyer or a doctor. Okay, I get that. But guess what? A plumber, in some cases, makes almost as much. <laughs> and, and, and plumbing is a very honorable and necessary trade. Just ask anyone who's ever had a toilet get stopped up and didn't know what to do. And yet, sadly, we, we have sort of tried to force everybody into the same mold. Well, if you want to be, here's the language, if you want to be a success, you have to have a college degree. Which sounds like that's a model that was made up by a bunch of college administration admittance people. Bob Zadek with us tonight. His program, by the way, heard Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock, the Bob Zadek Show. He unpacks a lot of issues, talks with newsmakers and uh, opinion shapers every Sunday morning, 8 o'clock. Check him out online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. A time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There is perhaps as much intrigue over his management style as there is the question, what will he do with Twitter? Will he, quote unquote, turn things around for the ailing social media giant? Bob Zadek, our guest tonight. And uh, Bob, this is interesting from a, from a constitutional standpoint uh, because of all of the give and take related to freedom of speech, First Amendment rights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm, I'm, I'm torn on this one in the sense that I, I see the power of that platform and the ability of information, accurate or otherwise, to sway opinions and to influence people. At the same token, um, the notion that somehow Elon Musk is some harbinger of um, protecting First Amendment rights in a private business that is not obligated to protect First Amendment rights because the First Amendment doesn't apply to what they do. I find uh, troubling, and and I'm wondering how we how we find sort of how do we strike that that balance where the platforms are engaging and yet free from the influence of government and others to try to manipulate them into determining who's right, who's wrong, uh, namely who gets on and who doesn't. You know, Craig, when when you and I. Uh, decided to discuss the subject of Twitter, I was both excited at the prospect and fearful. Twitter almost makes me self-conscious because I can't think of any other issue where I have so much trouble figuring out, believe it or not, how I feel. It's, I can make such compelling arguments for and against the issue of censorship and private business and how much should government be involved and how much should Twitter be regulated and how much does the First Amendment apply. The issue is so complicated. I am delighted to share with your audience some of the complications, but with a trigger warning, they're going to be up all night trying to figure out what's the right answer. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hear staggering. You. It's so complicated. For example, we start with the premise, I'm a libertarian, we start with the premise, private property is private property, and a business can do whatever the heck it wants. And if a business says, 
I don't, I'm not interested in letting you use my system, my program, my website. A business is generally free to do that. It's private property. Just like I am free to decide what signs to put on my front lawn and who to allow in my household. I have that freedom. Okay, that's a reasonable starting point. And then we have juxtaposition that the government, the government cannot regulate in general, very general statement, not a principle of law, cannot do anything as a government to limit one's right of free speech. And our country has the strongest free speech regime of any country on earth ever. We lead it. Okay, so that's part of our national DNA. That's all pretty easy. But Craig, you teed up in the introduction the an important issue. Can there be a point that a private company which has the right to do what it wants, in effect, become an agent of government. So it's just a fake private company. It's a private company legally, but in its behavior, it carries out the wishes of government. Imagine a, a city that hires a private police force. Now, and that's who runs the police jobs and let's imagine that private police force conducts an unreasonable search and seizure or doesn't give a Miranda warning they would say well it's not government it's a it's Pinkerton and Pinkerton doesn't have to Mirandize well that's not true because yes Pinkerton's a private company but they're acting under the control of government the government signs the contract so we agree and that's a wonderful example i think that pinkerton a private company is going to be held by the same standards as a municipal police force obviously well so now we have what's just beginning to come out right now in the so-called twitter files when we learn the fbi Health and Human Services, um, member Dr. Fauci, uh, letting Twitter, and to some degree Facebook, but mostly it's the Twitter files, letting Twitter know that we're the government and we really would appreciate it, Mr. Twitter, if you did not allow your customers to publicize positions that are contrary to Fauci, to, to Dr. Fauci's idiocy, because we don't want to limit the influence of government. Now, there comes a point, just like my Pinkerton example, a Pinkerton running a police force, that Twitter is really just government in drag. It <laughs> looks like a private company. And there's a line that gets crossed. Who knows where it is? But although I respect private property rights, I also acknowledge reality. And yes, there has to be a point that if the federal government, 
or maybe a state government, but the federal government says, hey, Twitter, we could write, we could impose taxes, we could police you, we could audit you through the IRS. We have lots of power, Twitter. So let's just do it the easy way and just make sure you limit the exposure of points of view that are contrary to that coming out of Washington. Well, one can honor the distinction between public and private actors. One can respect the First Amendment and say Twitter is now controlled by the First Amendment and the Constitution in general because they have become, in effect, a government actor and not a private actor. And wow, once you start doing that, where does it stop? Beats the heck out of me. And that's just one example. There are 10 others which we'll run out of time before we get to that make this issue so darn hard. And yet at the end of the day, and this is what I define, you know, I, I find disturbing. Uh, People understand that in the New York Times, for example, you can write a letter to the editor in the New York Times, but the New York Times may or may not publish your letter, or if they choose to publish it, they may edit your letter, and that is their right and privilege to do. Uh, likewise, if you go on a platform, be it Facebook or Twitter, whatever it might be, and the operator of that platform determines that there's certain types of speech that we don't want to encourage, um, so we're going to restrict access to our platform for people that use that speech, that constitutionally they have every right to do so. Now, is it good for business? Maybe yes, maybe no. Is it fair? Maybe yes, maybe no. I, I think what becomes problematic here for me, Bob, is more the question of the undue influence, and you touched upon this, that while constitutionally and legally the government may have no right, no power over um, Twitter and what content it allows on and doesn't allow on, it does nevertheless yield a pretty significant regulatory stick that might through inference, suggests that if you allow certain speech, that that could put aspects of your business at jeopardy. We might, for example, subject you to an IRS audit or, or whatever the case might be, whatever, whatever kind of power the government might wield, effectively imposing its will on a private entity, but doing so under the guise of um, fair play, fairness, um, and 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 for me, I think that's where this becomes problematic. Um, you know, pe- people have a right to vote with their feet, digest the information, conclude whether or not they they think it's uh, legitimate or not, check with other sources to see whether or not others are saying the same thing, and then draw their own conclusions. And yet, what's being suggested here is somehow there needs to be the oversight of this this you know uh, grand wizard in the sky that's going to determine what what is dangerous for people to be exposed to and what is not and when the government starts to make those kinds of suggestions i find it extremely troubling and very reminiscent of other governments at other times that have done the same thing where things did not end very well soviet union communist china at all You mentioned you drew a comparison with the New York Times. That, of course, um, invites a brief discussion of what's 
been nicknamed as Section 230. The New York Times, yes, they have the absolute right to exclude points of view they don't favor. They have that right. But there's a cost to that. The New York Times is, in constitutional law, it's considered a publisher. It has control of its content. Well, if you are a publisher, the downside of having that control is that if something appears in the New York Times that is slanderous or defamatory and it causes economic harm, the New York Times can be sued successfully sued because they're responsible for what's in their pages or on their website. The social media have the benefit of what's called Section 230, 230 yeah. which refers to Section 230 of the, of the Computer Decency Act of 1996, as I recall. Section 230 says that as to social media, if they do not exercise editorial control the way a newspaper does, if they do not, then they are not liable if anything defamatory occurs at their platform. So, and they couldn't exist unless they had that protection from litigation. Therefore, they make a bargain. Okay, we will not exercise editorial control but, and we want the shield from liability. And Section 230 is what allows them to exist. So now the question is, in Twitter, in what it's now coming out that it does, and the other social media platforms, in deciding their tools of censorship, in deciding who gets to have their point of view, have more exposure than somebody else's, are they now behaving more like the New York Times and a publisher? And if so, they can be sued. They're out of business. So they right now, compliments of Section 230, have it both ways. But I dare say, perhaps not for long. A court could easily find what they are doing is exercising the same editorial control as a newspaper, and therefore they're a publisher, and therefore they can get sued, and they'd have lawsuits in the triple, in the thousands and thousands of lawsuits. Because if anybody publishes something on Twitter that defames somebody else, Twitter can be sued. They're out of business. So that's the interesting yet-to-be-resolved issue. This is almost an example of, of having your cake and eating it, too, that, as you're suggesting, they have exercised what is... By default, editorial control over certain content, all the while under an umbrella that protects them from the consequences of acting like an organization that has editorial control, uh, essentially leaving them in the clear. It's not us. It's these third parties. We're simply the platform. We're not responsible, except when we decide to be responsible. And having it both ways maybe is really at the crux of the matter here, and and as much as Mr. Musk has come in pronouncing that he wants to make this a free speech platform, a community 
gathering place. I think at the end of the day, everybody needs to realize that um, in spite of all of the publicity, the hype, the window dressing, um, Twitter is first and foremost a place of business. It's a place in which money is made by selling advertising to adver- or selling selling the space to advertisers to reach eyeballs. That is fundamentally what it is, and I think this this notion of trying to assign some altruistic, oh, isn't this a wonderful community resource, I, I think really um, defies the reality of what this organization stands for. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. They, they make a living selling ads. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but it seems that what, what may be afoot here, as Sherlock Holmes would say, is a bit of a day of reckoning at some point, because I don't know that a court... With, with the right kind of argument would necessarily sustain the notion that they can have their cake and eat it too, meaning that they can select when they're protected by Section 230 and at other times they can select when they wish to exercise editorial control. Great. Uh, I know we're running out of time. There's one thought I want to share with the audience because it makes following this stuff so darn interesting, and that is the law is always breathlessly trying to catch up with technology, but it never will. Think crypto. (laughs) Think Twitter. Uh, The law will never catch up, and we are discussing for this past 20 minutes a case where the existing law didn't anticipate social media so much, and therefore... The law is the law. Collectively, is trying to figure out what to do. It makes this stuff so darn interesting to follow. And you've just touched on an issue that maybe we can save for next time. I would love to get your thoughts on the current landscape of um, so-called cryptocurrency and whether or not the uh, the chickens are coming home to roost in that one uh, very shortly. Bob Zadek with us tonight. You want to get more insights from Bob and his guests? Well, check him out Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer here locally. He's syndicated across the country to get a list of stations you can hear him on or uh, turn friends on to. You can go to his website, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. Bob, as always, we appreciate the time again a happy new year to you stay dry and uh, we'll catch up with you again real soon 602 from kfax three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.